morning. You give me strength and wisdom as I preach. It be your words and your thoughts. And that, Lord, your name will be honored and glorified in all that we do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, of course, we're going through the parables on Sunday mornings. And the parable before us this morning was spoken by the Lord as he's uh, in a Pharisee's house, one of the chief Pharisees. He's in their house on the Sabbath day. It says in verse 1 there, And it came to pass as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him. And so he's entered into this man's house, this chief Pharisee, he's entered in on the Sabbath day to eat bread. And as he's there in this man's house, as usual, the scribes and Pharisees are watching him. Verse 1 there ends with the words, it says, they watched him. They're watching him. They're watching him seeking to find occasion against him. You know, this was always the intent of the Pharisees. You know, they were hoping to catch the Lord saying something or doing something that they could then use against him, something they could use to discredit him before the people. And in verse 2, we learn that in attendance at this uh, man's house is a man who had the dropsy. It says in verse 2, And behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. And so this man is afflicted with what's called here the dropsy, and this is a swelling of the body. There's an accumulation of fluid. The Greek word actually means face and water, and it speaks of the, their face being bloated okay, from, this, from this swelling. And so this man is afflicted with this disease, and he is in attendance at the Pharisee's house on this particular day to eat bread. He's there at this, this meal, and he seems to have been planted by the Pharisees. I mean, that really seems to be the reason he's there. You know, they're watching the Lord. It's the Sabbath day, and they're providing an opportunity for the Lord to heal this man, and they're watching because they want the Lord to break their Sabbath rules. Not God's rules, their rules that they'd added to the Sabbath. <clears throat> so they seem to have brought this man in to try and trap the Lord. And of course, the Lord, he knows exactly what's going on. And so the Lord, he knows what they're thinking. He knows the situation. And the Lord proceeds to heal this man. Let's read from verse 3. It says, And Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal, a heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace. And he took him and healed him and let him go and answered them, saying, which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him again to these things. And so Christ here proceeds to heal the man and then he quickly rebukes the scribes and Pharisees. He quickly silences them. He points out their hypocrisy. You know, they would quite happily and quite readily uh, help their, their donkey or help their, their ox that had fallen into a hole on the Sabbath day, but they would ignore their fellow man. And so already we see at this, this meal here that the Lord is teaching those who have gathered. Okay, he's already teaching them. We see the Lord already putting them to shame for their sinful attitude towards their fellow man, their sinful attitude of hearts. You know, they'd sought to entrap him. They'd sought to discredit and embarrass him. But as always, the Lord's turned things completely around and the Lord's embarrassing them and discrediting them. And this all takes place, this whole situation with this man with the dropsy and his healing 
This takes place before they've even seated down for their meal. Before they've even sat down to enjoy the meal, this has all taken place. And it's only now in verse 7 that we see everyone begin to find a seat and the Lord watches on as they clamor for a seat. Look in verse 7. It says, And he put forth a parable to those which were bidden when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them. He watches as they choose out the chief rooms. It's this scene, watching them all run to get a space. It's this scene that prompts the Lord to give the parable lesson that we want to consider this morning. As I said, the Lord's already rebuked them for their sinful attitude of heart towards their fellow man. And now he's going to go even further and rebuke them for their sinful pride, their pride. So notice first when we hear this morning, the practice of the people, the practice of the people. Let's read verse 7 again. It says, And he put forth a parable to those which were bidden when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them. We're told here in verse 7 that the Lord marked out as they chose out the chief rooms. Now, the Greek word translated chief rooms here doesn't mean apartments or rooms as we would think of it. Rather, it actually means seats or cushions. Thayer writes this, he says, It means the first reclining place, the chief place at the table. And so they're rushing for the, the chief place at the table. Now, of course, in those days, they reclined on couches to eat their meals with their feet extended away from the table. And so basically, we see these guests here rushing to be on the best cushion next to the host. Okay, that's the best, to be next to the host, the one who's putting on this, this meal. Butler says this, there was considerable emphasis on honor and rank at these meals and feasts, which people hosted. Particularly was this seen in the vying for the seats of honor at the meals, where one sat spoke of rank and honor of the pe person at the meal. The highest seats of honor were to sit on the right hand and on the left hand of the host. And so because of the fact that, you know, where you sat at this meal spoke to everyone else of rank and honor of prestige, they rushed to get the best seats. You know, basically, you know, they pushed and shoved. They, they fought to get there first. And pride is really motivating them here to behave foolishly, isn't it? You know, Christ watches this on and it's a, it's a foolish scene that he watches happen before him. We see an example of this, this desire for the best seats. We see this in Mark chapter 10. Let's just turn over there. It shows us what the culture was like. This is a cultural thing, isn't it? Okay, we don't really have this same cultural idea. Mark chapter 10, <clears throat> let's read from verse 35. Mark 10, verse 35, it says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand, in thy glory. Now here we see the, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and they come to the Lord and they ask the Lord to grant their wish. And what's their wish? They want to have these 
positions, these seats of honor and prestige in the kingdom. You know, they thought like many that Christ at his first coming had come to set up a physical kingdom here on earth. And so they, out of pride and selfish ambition, come to the Lord and say, Lord, we want to sit on the left and on the right. We want those two most prominent positions in your kingdom. You know, we see them here maneuvering themselves to get ahead of all the other disciples, don't we? There's just selfish pride here. It's all about them. They don't care about the others. It's just about them. And Christ here rebukes them for their pride and for seeking to exalt themselves. Look in verse 38. It says, But Jesus said unto them, Ye ye know not what what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized with all, shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. Christ basically says it will be given to those who deserve it, who deserve to be honored. It's not mine just to give when you request it. And so we see here an example of how in their culture, this is a big thing to sit on the right hand and the left, to have these prominent seats. It wasn't just the disciples who were interested in this, of course. We see Christ also rebuke publicly the scribes and Pharisees for their love of the chief seats. Go to Matthew 23 with me. Matthew 23 and verse 1. It says, Then spake Jesus to the multitude, And to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not not ye after their works. For they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries, and enlarge the borders of their garments, and love the uttermost rooms at feasts, and the chief seats in the synagogues. Here we see the Lord clearly rebuking the scribes and Pharisees before the crowd here for their desire for the, these seats of prestige and honor at feasts and in the synagogue, in the temple. It was a selfish pride that motivated them. You know, they wanted to be seen. Of men, They wanted men to look at them and see them as having these positions of honor. They wanted the praise of men. One commentator said this, he said, These religious leaders were more interested in high places than in high character. They were more interested in the accolades of the people than in nobility of behavior. They preferred reputation above character. Unfortunately, every age has many who have the same preference. Indeed, even in our age, People strive for honor and prestige, don't they? It drives man, this idea of honor and prestige. People are driven by selfish pride, ambition. They want to be noticed by others and as such they will do whatever it takes to rise to the top. And so you see people, you know, just trampling over each other. They're trampling over each other to get to that position at the top and they don't care who they hurt along the way. It's like the Pharisees, people are concerned only with reputation not character butler says this this practice of pushing and shoving 
for places of position and high honor is common in every age. It may take on different forms and applications, but the prideful exalting of self is as current today as it has ever been. Indeed, men today are driven by pride, selfish ambition. It was true in the Lord's day as well. That's what the Lord witnesses take place here at this meal. He sees their selfish ambition and pride. It says there in verse 7 that he marked, he marked this. In other words, he gave attention or he observed it take place. You can sort of almost see the Lord just standing there and smiling as he watches this take place before him. This pride, this ambition. And that leads the Lord now to give the parable lesson. And so consider with me secondly here now this morning, the parable lesson. Let's look in verse 8. He says at the end of verse 7, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and him come and say to thee, Give this man place. And thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. And when thou art bidden, oh, sorry, but when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room. And when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, Go up higher, then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. Now the Lord now presents a, a story or an illustration, if you like. He asks them to think of themselves going to this wedding feast. Invite us to this wedding. And the Lord here, you know, as I said, he's just witnessed their unrighteous, sinful behavior. And so he's rebuking them here with this story, okay, with them invited to a wedding feast. And he begins by making it clear how they shouldn't behave. That's how he starts out. Verse 8, he says, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room. So Christ starts out by instructing these ones gathered in the Pharisee's house at this meal. He instructs them, he says, don't, when you arrive at a wedding, don't immediately go and sit in the highest room or the highest seat. Now, of course, this is what he's just witnessed happen. He's just seen this. And so he's rebuking them for it. Everyone putting themselves forward. Everyone assuming they deserved that seat of honor. The Lord here, he warns them. He says, don't do that. Because if you clamor for that seat of honor, you're opening yourself up to be shamed in front of everyone. He says there at the end of verse 8, he says, Lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him, and he that bade thee and him come and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. You see, the Lord warns here that they're opening themselves up to be shamed in front of everyone. You know, Christ gives the scenario here where you've entered into the wedding feast and they've rushed for this seat of honor, only then to be asked to move. Because someone more worthy, someone more honorable is in attendance at the feast. You know, to be asked to move like this would indeed be humiliating. It'd be shameful. And the Lord expresses this shame at the end of the verse. He says, and thou begin with, verse 9, sorry, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. Now think about it. You know, this is the scenario the Lord's painting here. You know, this man has come to this wedding feast. He's rushed for this position assuming his own importance. Okay? He's assumed how important he is to the one who's getting married. And he's settled into this seat and he's 
beaming with pride. You know, he's got the main seat. He's sitting there beaming with pride. Everyone else has now taken a seat and they all rank below him. So you can imagine the pride he's feeling. Everyone else is looking at him and they're thinking, wow, he must be a person of importance, a person of reputation. He's got the main seat. He deserves to be there. And then suddenly as everyone's watching on, the master of the feast comes along, taps him on the shoulder and says, you need to move. And so now he has to stand up in front of everyone and he has to now walk and not just move down one seat because, you know, all the other seats are full now. They're all full and none of them are required to move. And so he has to now walk all the way to the end, to the seat that's right at the back, you know, in the corner, out of the way, the least important, the lowest room, the lowest seat. You can see how Christ is describing a scene of humiliation, isn't he? Complete humiliation and shame before everyone. You know, this one was full of pride, exalting himself, but now he has been made low in the eyes of everyone. In verse 10, Christ then goes on and instructs the people what they should do instead. He says, don't do that. Instead, in verse 10, he says, but when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. Christ says, instead of when you arrive at that wedding feast, aiming for the top seat. He said, instead of doing that, instead go and sit in the lowest room, the lowest seat. Go straight to the corner. Go sit there. He says, go and be humble and put others in front of yourself. See, basically Christ says, instead of assuming that you are the most important person in that room, assume that everyone is more important than you. Assume everyone else is more important. Put them before you and go and choose the lowest seat. And this is not an easy thing that Christ is asking them to do here, is it? Especially in their culture where everyone looks at where you sit as being a position of rank and honor and they look down at you as if you're if you're in the corner you're looked down upon and so this is not an easy thing this requires great humility but by doing this christ makes it clear that there is opportunity for promotion you go and take the lowest room there's opportunity for promotion he says in verse 10 he says but when thou art bidden go and sit down in the lowest room that when he that bade thee cometh he may say unto thee friend go up higher here we see the humility by being humble there is possibility of honor there is possibility of promotion by taking the lowest seat that would give the master of the feast this opportunity to come and promote them and you know that's real honor isn't it it's real honor when someone else bestows it upon you particularly if it's the master of the feast and he comes and says, hey, stand up, come up here. And everyone watches as you get to go all the way to the top of the table. There is real honor in that. There's real prestige in that. Rather than honor that you've grabbed for yourself. You know, honor that you grab for yourself is not honor at all, is it? It's just putting tickets upon yourself. And that's what Christ is getting at here. You see, if they would humble themselves and take the lowest seat, there is opportunity for real honor, real promotion in the eyes of the people respects and he concludes the parable by speaking about this praise this honor in the eyes of men at the end of verse 10 he says then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee 
Now, the word worship here means glory or honor. Respect. It's not worship in the sense that you worship God. It's a different word. Barnes says this, The word worship means honor. They who are sitting with you shall treat you with respect. They will learn your rank by your being invited nearer to the head of the table. And it will be better to learn it thus than by putting yourself forward. They will do you honor because you have shown a humble spirit. You see, Christ here with this little story, this little parable, makes it clear that rather than seeking self-promotion, they should instead humble themselves and let others promote them. And in doing so, they will receive real honor, real respect. And so having made this point with the parable, Christ now concludes by stating the principle that he is trying to teach. Okay, and so let's consider thirdly here this morning, the principle stated. Look in verse 11. It says, For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Now here we see the principle of the whole matter. Now the Lord's not giving this parable story simply to teach them and us how to behave when you go to a feast or when you go to a wedding. The parable, of course, is a lesson for all areas of life. And we understand that, isn't it? It's a lesson for all areas of life. It's a spiritual lesson. And the principle that he states here in verse 11 can be divided into two clear statements or two rules for life, if you like. The first is, whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased. If you exalt yourself, you put yourself forward with this selfish pride, selfish ambition, you'll be brought low. And it's talking about being brought low by God. God will humble you. You know, there are numerous examples of this in the Word of God. There's numerous times where we can see someone exalt themselves only to be brought low by God. And one clear example of that is Nebuchadnezzar. Let's turn to Jer- the book of Daniel, sorry, Dan- Daniel chapter 4. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 4 this morning. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 28. <clears throat> it says, All this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? You know, here we see Nebuchadnezzar, his heart's lifted up with pride. Now he looks at the kingdom and he thinks, Look what I have done. Look what I have accomplished. He revels in his own glory, his own honor, and his own might. That's verse 30, isn't it? The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? He revels in his own might, his own power, his own glory. He praises himself. There's no hint of humility here, is there? Only pride. And so he exalts himself, and the result is that God humbles him. Look in verse 31. While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee, and they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, 
and seven times shall pass over thee until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. This, the same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar. And he was driven from men and did eat grass as oxen. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Before he'd even finished speaking those words of pride and arrogance, God judged him. God spoke from heaven and rebuked him and passed judgment upon him. You know, he exalted himself and now he was abased. He was humbled. God brought him low. He basically went mad. He went insane. And he's driven from man. He lives in the field like an ox eating grass. He lost his kingdom. He lost everything. God humbled him because he exalted himself. You see, the principle that Christ states here, whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased. It was proven true in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, wasn't it? And then the second rule of life that Christ gives, he says, he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. That's the complete opposite. It's the same Greek words, just reversed. Christ says, he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. He makes it clear, if you humble yourself, God will lift you up. Again, you know, we can look through the scriptures and we can find numerous examples of men and women who were humble. They humbled themselves in the eyes of men and God exalted them. God lifted them up. You know, we could even consider Nebuchadnezzar because you see, after being humbled by God, he humbled himself, repented of his sin and God exalted him. God lifted him up. God brought him back into the palace to be the king once more. Look there in Daniel chapter 4. If you're still there, verse 34 says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time, my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and, my, and bright, brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth, and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, after that period of time, those seven years, he humbled himself. He acknowledged who God is, and God lifted him up. And he ends there with the same words that Christ speaks, doesn't he? He says, and those that walk in pride, he is able to Abase. He looked at his own life and he understood God made him abase. God humbled him for his arrogance, his sin. We see clearly the difference, the, the change in Nebuchadnezzar. He gives praise and glory to God now instead. You know, we can, could go on and consider others. We could look at Joseph. He was humble and God exalted him. David, humble shepherd boy, exalted to be the king. We could look at Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was humble and exalted above all women. You know, the greatest example of this truth is the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Lord Jesus Christ. Go with me to Philippians chapter 2. 
Philippians chapter 2, the passage I'm sure we, we know well. Philippians 2 verse 5 <clears throat> says, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You know, Christ is indeed the greatest example of humility. Now, Christ, the eternal Son of God, humbled Himself. He left heaven's glory. He came down to earth and took upon Him the form of a servant. He became flesh and blood so that He might die in our place on the cross of Calvary. Verse 8 there says, And being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He humbled Himself and was obedient unto death. Now, his death there on the cross was the chief humiliation that Christ experienced while here on earth. You know, he was innocent, sinless, perfect, and yet he suffered the sinner's death. He died for the sins of all mankind. He became a curse for us. He humbled himself, and verse 9 tells us that as a result, God hath highly exalted him. God the Father exalted him. Verse 9, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. He humbled himself, became obedient unto death, and God the Father hath highly exalted him, lifted him up. Christ rose from the dead, ascended back into heaven, and now he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is seated in that position of greatest honor. You see, Christ humbled himself and Christ was exalted. It's the exact truth that Christ is trying to teach us here in verse 11. He that humbleth himself shall be exalted. You see, Christ not only taught us these principles, Christ lived them, didn't he? He lived them. And we are called upon as believers to now follow his example, to walk humbly here on earth. Now, of course, this attitude of humility really goes against our sinful nature, doesn't it? It goes against our sinful human nature. You know, pride has always been a problem for man, even since the fall. You know, back in Genesis chapter 3, Satan tempted Eve with the notion that they would be as gods if they partook of the fruit. Satan told Eve, he said, by eating the fruits, you will be equal with God. It appealed to her pride, didn't it? The desire to be exalted, that's what led to Eve's downfall. Her heart was lifted up with pride, and so she partook of the fruit. She wanted to be equal with God. She wanted to be exalted. You see, pride has always been mankind's problem from the very beginning. Butler writes this, Humility has never been a favorite practice of mankind. Starting in the Garden of Eden, Satan trapped man with his appeal to pride. Pride is a major motivator for the actions of many, but when pride motivates... Evil will be the eventual outcome. Indeed, pride always leads to sin. 
It always leads to sin. That desire to be exalted, that desire for self-ambition, it always leads to sin and wickedness. It leads to us treating each other terribly, not caring about other people's needs, what they're going through, putting others down, building ourselves up, seeking what's best for self. One commentator wrote this. He said, one, one look at society and you will see that we major on self-esteem and run God out of society. The world's philosophies have it all backward. They reverse what God has said. They tell us that pride is necessary, but not humility. But beloved, lowliness of mind may be of small account in the eyes of men, but it is everything in the eyes of God. Humility might be low in the eyes of men, but it is everything in the eyes of God. See, as believers, we are called upon to be different from the world, aren't we? To be different. Instead of being driven by pride, motivated by selfish ambition, self. Instead, we are called upon to be humble, to be meek like Christ our Savior. In other words, humbly serve others. Seek what's best for others instead of always seeking what's best for self. Put others first and ourselves last. Be content with where God has put us, the place of ministry, place of service, and just be faithful and allow God to lift us up. Allow God to exalt us. You see, it's the humble that God exalts and lifts up. It's the humble that God is able to use to his glory. James 4 verse 10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word today. A very simple truth, but a very hard truth to put into practice, Lord. Lord, so often we are all consumed by pride and selfish ambition. Or just like those Pharisees clamoring for the best seats. Lord, help us to humble ourselves. Help us to put each other first, the needs of others first. Lord, be content where you have us and just faithfully serve and let you exalt us in due time. Lord, may you help us with this matter of humility, we pray. Bless as we close in Jesus' name. Amen.